Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, the boys finish up their discussion of tradition and cultural evolution. Sean tells us about Walter Lippmann's public opinion, Gavin teaches us about British Corn Laws, and I forget to put my phone on silent. You can email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com, that's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com, to send us comments, questions, and topic ideas. You can also follow us on Twitter, at culturecampcast, and now on minds.com, at culturecamp. Hey everybody, welcome back to Culture Camp. This is Sean, and I am here with Gavin. Uh, This week, I decided to read Walter Lippmann's uh, Public Opinion. Walter Lippmann is a philosopher in the early 20th century who had quite a bit of interactions with Dewey, who we've spoken about before. Uh, Gavin will be continuing with reading... uh, Well, he will will continue speaking about themes from cultural evolution uh, that we've done for the previous two episodes. And I think a lot of those themes meld in really well with what's going on in public opinion. So in order to talk about this stuff, I have to give a brief introduction of public opinion and what it is. And I'm actually kind of intimidated about doing that. It's a very dense book. Walter Lippmann is a very, very thorough writer. He is a very intelligent man, and he is eminently readable. Uh, This is not like whenever I was forced to read John Dewey for this podcast and my eyes started to bleed. I actually enjoyed reading Walter Lippmann. But Walter Lippmann, in public opinion, so for a little bit of background, uh, Walter Lippmann worked for the Office of Public Information during World War I. He's a philosopher and writer of mass communication theory. And he actually pioneered quite a few terms that you may be familiar with today. Uh, I think probably the most obvious of which is the term stereotype, which comes up quite a bit in his theory. But what public opinion about is this. By the time we get to the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, everybody in the intellectual elite, from Walter Lippmann to John Dewey to government functionaries, are sort of agreeing that democracy isn't precisely working out uh, the way that it was supposed to, right? Uh, There seems to be this forming like ruling elite, uh, or it seems to be working inefficiently, and all these theories sort of form up as to why democracy is not working as intended. This is based on a lot of like failures during the late 19th century, especially during the Gilded Age with large companies uh, and trusts uh, like J.P. Morgan and railroads and Andrew Carnegie sort of riding roughshod over the little people. Now, Walter Lippmann and his theory as to why democracy isn't working as intended is basically that on a large enough scale in a complex enough society, regular people Uh, cannot actually be what large-scale democracies demand them to be. Uh, The term he uses, which I like, is that modern democratic society sort of theoretically demands that every single citizen is omnicompetent. And it's just a simple fact of life that you cannot have a society full of omnicompetent citizens. He goes through quite a thorough description as to how this problem ends up. So what he says is, people are incapable of forming high-resolution pictures, the larger and more abstract the situation they're dealing with. So a farmer in Pennsylvania is going to be very, very good at articulating and discovering and navigating problems within his own local community, but becomes uh, almost completely inept and thus impotent 
whenever trying to interpret events that are happening, you know, during World War One over on continental Europe and what policies the government should adopt to carry out the war in Europe. And he proposes that the solution to this, and I'm going to be greatly simplifying his work once again, I highly suggest that you read it, but Walter Lippmann is ultimately a man of classical education, and he basically articulates a form of the of Plato's guardian class, which Plato lays out in uh, his famous work, The Republic, which is basically you have this class of men whose self-interest is uh, the public welfare, and their job is to collect data and present it to the decision makers, uh, appealing to reason. And then those men whose self-interest is the public good is put down upon the people, and the people are more or less left to their own affairs except where the government intervenes. Uh, I have my own obvious problems with this. Even though, and I will say this, because this is what will kick off the conversation. There's not a single critique of democracy that Lippmann outlines that I have not articulated myself on this podcast. There are a lot of structural deficiencies within democracy, especially large, complex liberal democracies. I've said multiple times that I think democracy is much more meaningful on smaller scales. Mm -hmm. And that whenever you live in this sort of vast, complex, uh, technical society, it becomes kind of nonsensical to demand every single citizen to concern themselves with every major issue and be competent and be informed on every single major issue. Lippmann's solution is to create a technocratic sort of oligarchical class. My solution is a bit more organized. And I think Gavin wants to say something. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to hear you describe this. I think that the the biggest you know, flaw in the, the argument that Lippmann is presenting, I think is, is his solution, uh, of having this high up class, you know, this elite class who's the, the key problem, right, is getting their interests aligned with the interests of the country as a whole, right? Because the idea in democracy or in different theories of democracy, because there are several different theories of democracy is that, you know, if you're going in a Rousseauian route, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is a philosopher, uh, from several centuries before this time, uh, you know, that the democracy is going to express the general will, right? The the origin of democracy is in these small polities where, uh, you know, political participation and guiding the polity as part of that whole is sort of the core of citizenship. Um, and in all of those cases, you have an identification of the choices uh, of the the people in the democracy with the actual will of the society as a whole, right? Uh, Lippmann is, it seems like, making an argument that that is, you know, no longer true in American democracy in his time, and that, that because people lack this expertise, the the democratic will uh, or the, the democratic outcome doesn't necessarily uh, express the societal will or what is most beneficial to society, and as a result, we need to substitute these people the, these elites for the judgment of uh, the democratic institutions, right? And and but then you have this this fundamental problem that once you've substituted in an elite, there's no reason to think that the elite's interests are going to be the same as the interests of the society as a whole. So his solution is that we need to somehow create an elite who has those interests. But I don't see how how it can be articulated or how it's argued that 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 would happen. Well, see, that's the problem of public opinion, right? Uh, There is actually, I'm about to sound like I'm calling Walter Lippmann a fascist. I am not calling him a fascist. Uh, He is not a fascist. However, this seems to be the interesting way in which specifically 
fascists historically got around the problem of public opinion. Mm -hmm. So everybody sort of recognized there's this issue of like, okay, well, we have a big society. We want to, we all want to do one thing. Okay. Well, what if not, if ever, what if everybody doesn't agree? Mm-hmm. Essentially the communist solution, usually the Marxist solution, uh, if we change material conditions, uh, yeah. everybody will just sort of agree once material conditions are, are in such a way that everybody benefits and then everybody will be sort of unified in, in political will and action. Uh, fascists, and I'm thinking specifically of the the writings of Oswald Mosley, they kind of just jump over the problem mm-hmm. of public opinion uh, and say that, well, if the nation is designed to have a will that reflects the interest of the people, the will of the people and the uh, the interest of the people will be reflected in the will of the state, and then there won't be a problem with collective action, which I think is obviously sort of a recipe for, yeah, in, for a coercion. Yeah. In in fascism, you're you're saying you're solving this problem by by saying, well, we're gonna have a dictator and the dictator has you know the the embodies the state and the people and therefore his will becomes the will of the yeah, you just sort of you just sort of do a whole bunch of like uh, uh, A is B and B is C, therefore A is C like syllogisms of uh-huh. power, and it all seems to line up. But How, like you said, a recipe for coercion. It is yeah. a recipe for coercion. However, Lippmann, and I do think, yeah, I'm very much with like Plato on this idea that is it is important to recognize uh, and uphold the critical energies in any given work. Walter Lippmann's criticism within democracy, within like modern ideas of getting over the idea of public opinion is this idea of how they get around the inevitability of coercion, right? Mm-hmm. So where you have an aristocracy or an, aristocracy or an oligarchy that says, I'm using coercion, mm-hmm. but, you know, I mean, uh, some states might say, you may not like it, but I don't care, that's authoritarian. A totalitarian state might say, I'm coercing you, but you like it. But his phrase that I underlined in the book was that within modern democratic societies, coercion is, it's absurd, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, uttered in the breath, but not in the voice. So every single solution to getting over public opinion ultimately goes in, well, we're still going to pioneer the mechanisms of state. We're still going to use the state monopoly on force to Mm -hmm. get you to do what we want you to do. But we've done it in such a process where you believe it's done within your best interest. Mm -hmm. But the coercion is still there. You still haven't solved the problem of public opinion. I personally don't think there is a solution. Mm-hmm. per se, to the problem of public opinion. And I actually think we're hitting sort of an optimization problem where it's like the more you try to find an optimal solution to mm-hmm. a problem like public opinion, the more you inevitably create uh, violence and coercion because it is sort of a form of immunization, right? Mm-hmm. Because to solve the, the problem of public opinion is to perfect the populace to perfect the populace, which is the recipe for violence. I think mm-hmm. we repeat in every episode. Here. Yeah. Right. You, 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 you know, if public opinion, you know, ari- public opinion arises from the uh, psychology and culture of the people who are having the opinions, and in order to get it, you know, get it to be a certain way, then you have to either convince or coerce those people, and people don't like to change their minds, and and people and there's a wide, you know, array of thought, and and it never fully identifies with whatever the elite preferences would be. So how how exactly does Lippmann? assert that uh you know an elite class in a democracy like he's talking about could could have the the interests of the public as their interests does he ever do that and try to solve that well no so what he says and i mean i think what's at the center of the book is the positive role of propaganda so in in the modern day propaganda is used uh exclusive like it's 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 an aspersion it's something if somebody says that's propagandistic then 
they're saying that they're usually implying that it's false and it's being uh, it's being said falsely with an aim in mind. Walter Lippmann supposes that propaganda, uh, and he himself is a journalist. That's mm-hmm. where he got to start. He himself is a journalist, and he views uh, the media's role as uh, through their agenda setting function, right? So for mm-hmm. it's like in the 1960s, there was this theory put forward that uh, the real role of the media is like, they, they have this role of agenda setting. Mm-hmm. And that's that you can't show the public everything. And so you ultimately have to make choices as to what the public gets shown. Right. And so whether or not, uh, whether or not they're trying to put a bent on it or not, what the media shows you at the end of the day is sort of an expression of their bias. And they can use this consciously to drive public opinion which they do, and there's you know countless obvious examples we can think of all throughout the past, all the way up to the modern day. But the whole idea is that, okay, so Walter Lippmann says, you have this problem of public opinion, mm-hmm. and like you just asked, you have these elites, and they want, uh, they want public opinion to be on their side. So the answer isn't the democratic answer of, well, we represent and meet public opinion. Our answer is we steer public opinion, mm-hmm. and this is Walter Lippmann's solution to democracy in the complex society. Because people at low levels are incapable of forming high-resolution pictures of large, uh, complex events, mm-hmm. you basically have the news present a series of stereotypes to them. So, mm-hmm. like you know, like prepackaged ideas that form a meta narrative mm-hmm. that make them ultimately go on the elite side. Now I will say, even though like the temptations behind the system are obvious, I don't think I have to state that Lippmann himself says, uh, I mean, he says a lot of things and uh, he says enough things where you can make him say almost whatever you want him to say. But he does say that he is no great lover of free, free speech, but he also says repeatedly that the power of censorship should only ever be in the hands of people who are themselves tolerant. Mm-hmm. So he already sort of like uh, it was obvious to him what the temptation to power in this system was. But ultimately, his solution to public opinion isn't the, the, the democratic solution of represent the public opinion in aggregate. It's do your best to change public opinion. Yeah. And then I suppose you can represent it once you've changed it. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, because the original idea is that I guess, you know, or my original question is like, how do these elites end up having the, you know, the believing the, or having as their interests, the interests of society as a whole, or the interests of the populace. By convincing, right? well, by convincing by con- the population that they, yeah, they are. Yeah, right. So, so like the idea here, uh, you know, I think one of Lippmann's presuppositions or one of the things that he's asserted based on what you've said is that the elites do have this high resolution picture of what's going on in society and that their ability to see what's going on allows them to, to then produce prop, you know, this propaganda of, of stereotypes that conditions the populace to have, a, have a, a better picture of the picture that they need to. But I guess maybe my, my later critique of that is the idea that you know, even if you're conveying, even if you have a clear vision, a high-resolution vision of what's going on in society in its totality, that resolution, if you view it as information, is something that if you you know, is, doesn't mean that your interest, that that doesn't condition your interests to be benevolent, right? Of course not. Right. So, so if it's solving a problem of, you know, non-elites not having information, because now the elites have the information, they present these stereotypes, but the, the propagandistic stereotype may actually be a distortion of the reality that the elites see that's in their interests. Right. And so, 
One of the problems that he presents is the change in both the populace and elites over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite a bit of the back half of this book, and I think the stuff that I underline the most, because I learned so much about American history in doing so, is he talks about the inevitability of these problems you just described. And so, like, whenever the country was founded, Mm -hmm. uh, I've mentioned James Madison writing the Federalist Papers and that he's talking about we have this system of checks and balances and ambition must be checked with ambition. But ultimately... During the founding of the country, something roughly like one-sixth of the adult male population was actually uh, allowed to vote. And mm-hmm. there were they had landowning restrictions on them. Yeah, And it seems kind of obvious to Walter Lippmann that their interest is tied uh, to the land. Mm-hmm. And that in this sort of, this ties in some way their interest from the land to the well-being of, of the people who live like on top of the land, which is a very sort of feudal type yeah. thinking. It's it's interesting that the to see that presented in that way. Cause like a, a feature of say uh, British politics in a period close to this is uh, the struggle, you know, like over the corn laws between British landowners who don't want grain to be imported because they want to make money selling grain. And uh, you know, people like David Ricardo is a famous economist who wants more corn imported uh, because under the classical models of political economy uh, that he's working on, Uh, that will uh, increase wages because it decreases food prices right Mm -hmm. and and so to see that the this that historical example kind of flies in the face of the idea that uh you know the the one-sixth of people who own property are going to be the the ones who really uh represent the the good of the country though that that idea that property owners should be the ones voting is something that was um you know, very persistent for a very long time and present in a lot of, of early democracies and different things like that. It's interesting to consider Lippmann's argument um, in the context of the events that happened, you know, after that formulation of the American system at its founding. Because, you know, the big strains that kind of go against that, uh, uh, that are consistent with that to some degree, but also end up going against it are like, say, Jeffersonianism. Right, which is the idea that Americans should be these, you know, small landholders, right, yeomen, and then the Jacksonian uh, democracy is, you know, Jackson, Andrew Jackson is the seventh president of the United States, and his revolution uh, in uh, politics leads to a mass politics because because the founders originally intended for you know the franchise to be extended to a smaller component of the the. Um, the populace and, and, you know, the, the election to office to be that of kind of the best men. And then, uh, Andrew Jackson and, and the Jacksonian revolution extended the franchise to, uh, a massively larger proportion of the population, you know, basically, basically to, to all, all white men. Yeah. 1828 was the first election where almost now every single state. Yeah. 1828, mm-hmm. uh, cause he lost in 1824, 1828 was the first election where every state uh, had gotten rid of the land ownership component in voting. And that noticeably changed the character of the electorate from what it was, right? Because mm-hmm. the first the first group, the first electorate within America was an elitist group. These were all yes. educated men of the Enlightenment. Now, Jeffersonianism, uh, Lippmann talks about Jeffersonian democracy, and he makes a very, very interesting point, which I don't want to be true, mm-hmm. but probably is true. And he says that democracy in the Jeffersonian sense uh, it is contained within a circumscribed 
space. Mm-hmm. Or it can't contain itself. It can only ever be expansionist or isolationist. But it's inherently unstable. And that's because he uh, he lies out an absolutely brilliant argument for it. But he's basically like, democracy can't deal with like external threats uh, very well. And it has to pre- protect against those. And what yeah. happens is all these hyper-democratic communities throughout the 19th century... What do they all end up doing? You know, like uh, <clears throat> like a uh, Fruitland or uh, the Owenites. You know, they all go off uh, out west and they yeah. form these utopian so, communities. So those are those are people. You know, like uh, speci- you're saying those are democratic groups that have utopian ideals of democracy and attempt to join the, form yeah, their own. They're interested in utopian hyper democratic yeah. ideals, right? They they're, uh, and this is the push throughout American history is keep expanding the franchise, keep making it more democratic. This can only happen in a space where you are isolated and left alone by the larger society. So you have a mm-hmm. community that's absolutely democratic or, uh, the other interesting thing, which is that, which I call the crusading democratic spirit, which is sort of the term that Dr. John Mearsheimer uses, uh, and that's, you know, that's an example of like, uh, Athens adopting democracy and then deciding, wouldn't it be amazing if we civilized everyone else and made them good democracies too? Right. Uh, some people have argued that this is the, the American project, uh, through the latter half of the, for all, I mean, from right. world war one on making the world safe for democracy, right? Mm-hmm. There's, and Lippmann is very aware of this, that yeah. there's making this, the world safe for democracy is a quotation from president Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's that Lippmann is aware that there's very much this impetus in democracy that in order for it to work, it either happens in an isolated Jeffersonian type community mm-hmm. or it becomes very interested in expanding itself. Yes. But, uh, he says that all the successful quote, he, he has a quote in here where he's talking in like the 1920s, all the successful, uh, democracies of his time and he names mm-hmm. switzerland and denmark and new zealand and the u.s uh during its during the 19th century didn't really have much of a foreign policy i mean the u.s had like the monroe doctrine but mm-hmm. that was really to to circumscribe a space yeah for democracy which sort of fits into his model i it's a it's a really brilliant description as to what's going on well, in democracies with foreign policy it seems like in you know the the problem is is that the moment that you have any kind of foreign policy or relation to other polities then your system of government is being shaped to deal with those right yeah you're compromising uh, sovereignty yeah uh who who was the there's some uh libertarian I think it was some libertarian uh philosopher who said war is the health of the state ah uh, yes that's uh <laughs> I just quoted this in class the other day. Yeah, uh, World War One is true is truly the outplay of this. I know. Who yeah. you're, I know what you're talking about. Though. Sorry, I, can, I can't remember the exact person, but the but war is the health of the state. And actually, if you if you think of uh, the relationship between politics and war, right, um, that that you have to have a political system that's capable of waging war. Uh, that then you you know it constrains your ideas because you you can vote on a a, a system. Right or vote for a set of policies or a governmental structure in a democracy uh, that that you know might be an expression of the popular will, but uh, your what what form that can take right is constrained when you have to interact with other countries right. Like if you want to have a, a decentralized mili- decentralized structure and a you know uh, not a lot of government expenditure. Uh, then if your neighbors can conquer you because of that, you end up having to spend more money, right, and build up a bigger military. And then you have to build up institutions to counter the military and contain the military. And then you all you have this, you know, the military is a culture within your culture that's reshaping people, and it just snowballs, right? 
and and so the the I, I think you know tell me if this is related strongly to to uh, Lippmann's argument, but it seems like a big big part of his argument again, or, or something that might complement his argument uh, against Jeffersonian democracy or the limits on Jeffersonian democracy is that this this sort of foreign policy affects the internal structure of your government, making it less democratic. Well, it does, I, and that's basically what he says. Because keep in mind. Walter Lippmann wrote Public Opinion just mm-hmm. after he had finished working for the Office of Public Information. This is the World War I mm-hmm. Ministry of Information. Uh, it's, it exists by executive order from Woodrow Wilson yes. from 1917 to 1919. I'm giving, I'm giving some background just in case uh, some listeners don't know, but it's basically uh, the... I don't want to say Ministry of Truth. I don't want to disperse it like yeah. that, but it is a Ministry of Information, mm-hmm. and it's headed up by a guy named George Creel, mm-hmm. who Lippmann uh, does not like. He yes. he mentions him a couple of times, but uh, Lippman is very is very derogatory toward derogatory towards George Creel. Uh, George Creel is like the propaganda mastermind yeah. of World War One, and he plays an integral public role in 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 what Lippman here is describing. Right. Yes. So you're at, you've been asking, okay, so how do the elites deal with the problem of public opinion? Do they come to the public? No, you hire George Creel to make the public come to you. Yeah, because the war was not very popular it wasn't just popular on like a uh, uh, philosophical ground it was unpopular on very economic grounds mm-hmm. and uh, world war one involved standardizing a lot of production processes that yeah. uh, that otherwise people would not have wanted to happen that's where the most resistance came from yeah well and wilson's entire political project is one of of centralization you know he's a he's a feature of the progressive era of centralization and standardization and, and re-education of the populace, right, according to these, these progressive ideals, which is antithetical to both Je- the Jeffersonian, Jeffersonian and Jacksonian conception of governments that, that had been, uh, you know, prevalent in either elite or, you know, popular thought throughout the 19th century. I mean, I think Walter Lippmann recognizes that Woodrow Wilson represented this vast shift in the ruling class yes. over the course of the 19th century, where Woodrow Wilson is looking at democratic processes like the House, and these are obstacles to overcome. Yeah. Right? They're not institutions to embrace. Yeah. The, the, the U.S. government is designed in a way to, to sort of limit the amount of change that it's able to implement, right? It's designed to be conservative in a certain sense. Um, because there's, you know, things have to be proposed in one house, they have to be passed by both houses, they have to be uh, signed by the president, and then they have to, you know, if they're challenged in courts, they have to pass judicial review. And some of that kind of accreted a little later, like the ju- judicial review, right, uh, was a, was possibly not um, as much the original function of the Supreme Court, but became part of it, and Wilson wants a more, uh, um, you know, sort of muscular executive, which is, it, it's interesting to, you know, muscular executive that has, you know, kind of like a parliamentary system where you you choose the majority gets to choose the prime minister, and there's this unity in government and in in passing legislation and in in uh, um, reshaping government and the populace. And it's it's interesting to think about that being a uh, more muscular government and the propaganda arm being a, a more muscular uh, branch of the government when when Jacksonianism has been described as as muscular democracy, right, or a sort of uh, uh, ideal of democracy where each you know again pretty much through through its its heyday as an ideological system it's it's white men who have the specific culture and the specific um uh 
you know, uh, sort of individual discernment in order to to hold up the the popular democracy. Of course, I think that a lot of Jacksonian ideals and Jacksonian beliefs uh, have have stuck on in the United States even even past. Uh, the period where it's recognized in an explicit uh, ideology, and I don't think it's necessarily tied to being white or male anymore. I think it, it has, uh, there are other groups and, and people who've embraced it, and I think the people who who embrace it don't conceptualize it on those terms anymore, but but at the time in the, you know, in the 1820s, 1830s that it was being formulated, that's the way in which it was formulated. But the, the main point being that it's it's about individuals who have uh, will and autonomy and liberty formulating their own opinions as opposed to this model where uh, the government uses a propaganda office to formulate their opinions for them. Well, that's the great irony of the era, of the progressive era, mm -hmm. which I spend way too much time worrying about. Mm -hmm. But as the government is centralizing, it's like mm -hmm. Woodrow Wilson, he yeah. wants a more media executive. Why do you want a more media executive? So we can be more democratic, so I can better uh, outplay the general will. Yeah. Basically. And I, I deliberately use the term the general will, by the way, because this is what the Rousseauian the, the, idea. There. Well, this is the term that the committee of public safety used during the French revolution, right. uh, during the progressive era. It's, uh, it's the public good, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, uh, like the, the city of San Diego seal says there is nothing more noble than like the public good. Yeah. And everything that's done in the name of the public good must be democratic. Like democracy is the public good. The public good is democracy and an executive like Woodrow Wilson. There's, yeah. It's interesting to see the sleight of hand that can go on there, right? This goes back to this idea. It is a sleight of, of hand. Of, I'm, of how I'm does, glad how you the, catch that. How, do, how does the, yeah, because, because what it, this goes back to the question of, okay, we have these elites and the elites have certain interests and how do we make their interests line up with the interests of the population? We convince the populace that populace that the populace's interests are are their interests, right? And that doesn't necessarily have to be true. Well, if you're if you're talking about the common good, right? If the people don't will what you perceive to be the common good, right? Then then what do you do? Well, if you if you or your class, like an elite class, sees the common good as being one thing and the populace sees it as being another thing, then the concept of the common good becomes a uh, pretext for you to propagandize them out of their, you know, just to borrow a Marxist term, false consciousness. But of course, the, the, the propagandizing out of the false consciousness uh, is, you know, there's the fundamental question there is, are, do you really perceive the common good and are you pro propagandizing them out of their false consciousness or is your conception of the common good or the, the general will simply a uh, reflection of your own class's interests and you're propagandizing them into a false consciousness? So to go back, related to this, so to go back to, we were taught, you brought up Jackson earlier mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know if you mentioned the bank war or not. Yeah. One of the key parts in this uh, game of propagandizing where mm -hmm. uh, you have, you're faced with the problem of public opinion. And so you decide, obviously we must propagandize the public to, br to bring them to us. The, pr the presupposition in this is that the public is stupid or mm -hmm. that your opponents are stupid. Yeah. And Walter Lippmann makes a convincing case that in most general cases, this is true. This has been done to death in regard to Andrew Jackson and the bank war. Yeah. Because Andrew Jackson and his followers, and indeed people who were on sort of the wrong side of history, uh, quote unquote, uh, economically speaking, during the 19th century. So from Jackson's uh, banking war to like the bimetallists, right? Yeah. They all get cast uh, as morons in uh, 
in propaganda that's like tied to Washington, D.C. whenever they're discussed. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at the things that Jackson is saying during the time, if you actually like uh, if you actually look at the arguments of like some of the inflationists in the 1870s and 1880s, these people aren't like moronic populists who have a a less than. Uh, stellar understanding of economics. These are people who are very intelligent. They've thought about these issues very thoroughly. And a lot of work was put in to make them seem, I'm referencing specifically things uh, like like the Grange movement, mm -hmm. uh, which rose up in opposition to exploitation by the railroads. And, you know, there was this class of people in the late 19th century who were for a greenback. They wanted a more inflationary currency because if you owe money, it's easier for you to pay money yeah, back in pay, an inflated it currency. Farm down. And people knew this. Yeah. And uh, whenever you look at pamphlets of like greenbackers or you look at any of the things that Jackson's followers were saying all the way back in the 1830s about the bank, again, this is not like a moronic populism that it's being cast. These people yeah. are just as aware of economic issues. But in hindsight, they get portrayed in American history textbooks that I've taught from mm -hmm. as stupid. Yeah. And it's because you're saying you're saying people like William Jennings Bryan, like the bimetallists people who want to yeah. add silver to the money. So, so just, to, just to give some, some background on this in the late 19th century, uh, the U S currency is, is largely backed by its ability to be exchanged from gold, which is a, which gold. is a conservative elite position at this time. Right. Cause it, cause the exchange for gold. Yeah. Th these days that seems like more of a populist position. Yeah, exactly. But, but at the time, uh, these, you know, the, the business interests all wanted, wanted, uh, you know, the, the, hard currency they wanted the currency to be exchangeable for gold because that preserves the purchasing power of the currency uh and this caused some serious problems uh you know if you if you believe in the uh monetarist way of looking at this um you know when when you have uh, your supply of money is constrained by it's being able to be exchanged by gold and the economy expands um then you can get uh deflationary pressure so uh the the amount that can be purchased with a single dollar actually goes up, which helps people who have savings, but punishes people who have debt. And a lot of these right. farmers had mortgages on their farms, and so they wanted silver to be added to the money supply. Um, and as a result of that, that, you know, with the expectation that if silver were added to the money supply, there would be a greater supply of money, there'd be some slight inflation, which would, would ease their debt or at least not make it worse year over year. And at the same time, they were dealing with railroads who could charge them exorbitant rates for the shipping of the produce of their farms and things like that. Uh, so, the, and those railroads were aligned with the business interests, with their specific monetary interests. Um, you know, wanting wanting the the us to remain on a basically gold standard currency. And then there were other people who wanted to to issue the kind of paper money that we have now and get some inflation that way. And all of this leads to 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 two big things. Uh, William Jennings Bryan famously, I think it's in 1892. The Cross of Gold speech. Yeah, he gives a, yeah. a, a speech saying, you shall not crucify this country upon a cross of gold, meaning that you cannot pin this country, nail it to the gold standard and 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 you know crucify it on this the the need to have gold uh and then uh eventually uh one of the arguments about why this became less of a political issue is that uh several gold rushes toward the end of the 19th century uh actually increased the supply of gold sufficiently that the the money supply was increased and it it eased the specific problem so it's almost like some sort of like basically the Klondike gold rush among others uh, uh eased the problems 
And so it wasn't even a policy solution. It was almost random that, that something managed to liquidate this. So what's striking about this controversy, though, and this is not my take. This is Murray Rothbard's take, uh, which he writes down. In, uh, no, I'm sorry. This is Paul Kleppner's take uh, in his discussion about the third party system of the United States, pietist versus liturgicals. But he points out something. He, he, he has a thesis statement, which is very shocking, and it's that today's uh, party system is relatively nonpartisan mm-hmm. compared to the party system of the late 19th century. And yeah. it's because you have regular people like what Gavin just described, which he described it very uh, precisely and intelligently and far better than I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, I'm in like baby economist mode. Cause I'm just learning about all this stuff. What he described is very technical and it can be very difficult to sort of weave through economic syllogisms, but you had regular people, you had farmers mm-hmm. and they were talking about how, you know, farms are expanding and the price of wheat is falling and we owe these debts. So we want to inflate the money supply. Regular people are often debating about very, very complex things. Yeah. And then in hindsight, what's so interesting is by the time you get to the era of, of like Eddie Bernays and Walter Lippmann, you see, uh, you see these people portrayed as well. These were just a bunch of like dumb populist mm-hmm. this farmers. Is by, by the time you get to the twenties and thirties, right? Yeah. They, they and, didn't and understand economy. about Bernays real quick. Cause I don't think we mentioned it. Bernays, uh, Bernays is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Uh-huh. He wrote a book called propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> which is just what it was called. Mm-hmm. And he is probably most famous for his lucky strike cigarette campaign uh oh, yeah. he, he was approached he was uh he kind of single-handedly invented the flapper because what happens is lucky strike approaches him i'm gonna get the years wrong on this somebody can correct me i'll say it's like 1916 or something uh no it must have been near the end of the war it must have been 1919 mm-hmm. but lucky strike approaches him and basically that uh, you have to keep in mind up to this time period it was taboo for women to smoke, smoke yeah and lucky strikes wanted to increase their market and so bernays said i'll get women to smoke uh, and so what he did is he created this campaign. It's called the Freedom Torches campaign. Like Google it. It's it's the first large, It's the first big tobacco campaign. And you have women come out and they're sort they're violating sort of some of the 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 taboo standards of the day. And they have these very short dresses and they have sort of this bang haircut and they're wearing jewels and they're smoking cigarettes on these these long wooden flutes. And it he what he does is he couples it with a lot of the sexual liberation that had been going on in places like Greenwich Village in Manhattan under Margaret Sanger since 1914. And the campaign said a real a truly liberated woman smokes lucky strikes. Right. Mm -hmm. And then overnight, uh, you know, the tobacco industry blew up. They had basically like doubled their customer base almost. And it was just it was this thrilling, wonderful success. And Bernays, uh, whatever you think of him or Sigmund Freud, sort of proved i don't want to say proved yeah he definitely gave weight to like litman's point that mm-hmm. if you're smart enough and you know what to do people can be driven through propaganda to get what you want yeah. in this case it's for something entirely venal but litman is supposing that those energies can be turned to something for the public good yeah well and so it's interesting to contrast uh uh Bern- bernay's campaign with what litman is talking about here because litman Uh, is coming out of a government agency that's producing propaganda for the state during World War One, right? Yeah. And then Bernays is working for advertising firms that are pursuing commercial interests. So, you know, a minute ago we were talking about elites and we didn't really specify who those elites are. 
but one of the important questions is, uh, you know, which elites are producing the propaganda, right? Because in the case of of Lippmann, the uh, elites are the governmental elites who Woodrow Wilson, people who want us to be in World War One, and then in the case of, of Bernays, the uh, elites are uh, corporations who want you to consume. And it's interesting that they use a political message because weren't they work? Wasn't it directed at the suffragette movement as well? Yeah, freedom torches. Yeah, because that's the torches. idea of being a freedom torch is that it's a the torch of. So it's it's not just personal liberty, right, uh, to be a liberated woman, but it's also political liberty in wanting to be to participate and it's it's being commercialized to sell you something that gives you cancer well and it's all it's um, using it's writing on the, the democratic right. language of the time i yeah. mean you know woodrow wilson make the world safe for democracy and in essence it's saying hey if you smoke you're going to be better at democracy, democracy this yeah. is what john dewey's talking about yeah this. just and and what's funny is is that this is just like the entirety of the the i mean Cigarette commercials remained like this for those of you who've ever seen the Marlboro Man, right? The idea nine out is, of ten doctors recommend yeah. Marlboro. <laughs> yeah. So, but 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 the Mar right the Marlboro Man right is is selling a similar idea to to men right smoke these cigarettes and you'll be tough and independent and liberated like the cowboy is a, almost like a Jacksonian symbol too right yeah you're you're a rugged individualist out rugged on the frontier yeah, that, out on the frontier and if you smoke these cigarettes you'll be like the Marlboro Man too right. <laughs> So, so that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, and, and again, you know, the, the, the question that would arise, right, like if, if you like rugged individualism or if you like uh, women's suffrage or if you like women's liberation is like, okay, well, you know, these products weren't supposed to get, you know, cigarettes ended up giving you cancer and that's the problem with this Wait, whole what? thing. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, but, you know, if, if you're selling people a product that they like and you're actually advancing these, um, you know, this sort of uh, uh, these liberationist movements through your uh, uh, um, the selling of the product or this this propaganda campaign, then, you know, what's wrong with it? Which is a way of rehabilitating propaganda to say that, you know, if a corporation produces a symbol, right, like the cigarette becomes in when it's a freedom torch or when it's being smoked by the Marlboro Man, right? And it, it's a propagandistic symbol, but, you know, we can say propaganda isn't actually a negative term. Uh, then, you know, really what's the harm with uh, corporations producing those symbols if they, if they lead to political advancement or give people personal satisfaction? Well, that's what's really scary about talking about propaganda in this way is that in order to really understand propaganda and how it works, and I think this, this might be the part where we slide a little bit into cultural evolution, mm -hmm. it's that People have to recognize, I'm, I'm going to try to find the best way to say it. People have to recognize that they're not fully themselves and they're not always completely in control of right. their own faculties. Yeah. And that's the point of propaganda is to sort of use your own attention against you. Yeah. And the problem, because what happens is people sit there and uh, in any given discussion about propaganda, try talking about it with your friends, everybody in the situation sort of presupposes that, like propaganda is what everyone else consumes, right? Not right. me. I'm ethereal and smart and discerning and amazing. And I, I can tell what's bullshit yeah. and what's not, but, uh, it's obvious that like everybody sort of has this opinion about themselves, but everybody's also buying into some form of propaganda. Right. And admitting that propaganda works is sort of a tacit admission that you can be a rube too. Yeah. And that's frightening. Well, everybody's limited, so everybody can be a rube. Uh, and I think that, that you know, at, at one point or another, it's going to happen to you, right? And and admitting that is the... One not of, me. Uh, not, not, not Sean, but everyone else. Um, and... and uh, 
you know, admitting that is uh, one of the ways in which you can you can actually fight back about it against it, right? But I think that you know the example of the of the cigarette company is so potent because it it actually holds a clue. You know, of, of the freedom torches cigarette thing is that it actually holds a clue toward why like uh, commercial propaganda produced by elites that formulates opinion like this is actually can actually be pernicious and damaging. And the, the reason is is that um, you know in the time of Bernays, so like let's say let's say hypothetically that that you know I'm not sure if this is necessarily true, but that that the introduction of freedom torches and women smoking actually did help. Like we like like that w helped liberate women on a personal level, right? And that that's a, a pro social thing, and that it helped uh, get women's suffrage through, right? Let's say that it did. Help yeah. with that, and I'm all for women's suffrage and, and women being able to do what they want. I'm I'm a big you know liberty oriented person, uh, but they didn't know in Bernays' time that uh, cigarettes would cause cancer, um, and uh, and so at the time it seems benign, but then later on when they figured out that cigarettes actually do cause cancer, you know the the uh, cigarette companies covered it up, right. And that gives you a clue to the one of the facts about this sort of corporate manufactured propaganda, is that the it, the corporate manufactured propaganda is always going to be in the interests of the corporations, right? It will sometimes be in incidentally beneficial or incidentally benevolent, right? Um, and to some degree, corporations have their own sort of uh, you know they're they're not completely amoral, right? But but they they have their own corporate cultures that have their own moral cultures and their limitations on what they'll do. But but overall, uh, they they may be incidentally beneficial, but they're always going to be in the interests of the corporation, right? And that's really what comes to the fore when you see what in, what happens with the um, uh, you know continued cigarette advertisements and denials that they cause cancer after the. The cigarette companies know, and they did know. Like they knew very early on, and they they concealed it for a very long time. And I'm comfortable saying that because I think that the historical record bears it out. Um, and and that was uh, very profitable for them. Uh, so when you're when you're talking about corporate produced propaganda, that's the thing to keep in mind is that if there is some sort of cost that it's imposing on other people or some sort of harm that it's doing, as long as that doing that harm is in the interest of those corporations and doesn't hit their bottom line uh, and they can you know they can they can hide it or deceive themselves about it uh, or feel that they don't have a duty to take it into account then they will do so and in that sense they can end up doing uh, quite a bit of damage to society what's really interesting to me is how they choose to engage in propaganda and what things they choose to highlight. So mm -hmm. we just got done talking about Bernays freedom torches, mm -hmm. which is an appeal to liberty, which mm -hmm. is that, which is to say an appeal to democracy, uh, in world war one. Uh, so quite a bit after world war one in 1934, there was a commission, uh, established called the Nye commission by mm -hmm. a Republican from North Dakota, uh, Gerald Nye, and it was basically a commission on war profiteering during World War One. The Nye Commission is like this; it's this very big uh, list of corporate corruption throughout World War One and who profited off it. So, like Dupont, an arms manufacturer, four hundred percent profits. Uh, right. It became apparent that J.P. Morgan was loaning money to both sides of the war, and that they probably pushed Wilson into 
actually going into the war. Now, the commission gets cut off whenever Gerald Nye uh, specifically accuses Wilson of concealing information from the public so that he could make an official declaration of war. Mm -hmm. But that stuff doesn't come out until 1934. The line during the war and the sort of stuff that George Creel is producing Mm -hmm. through the Office of Public Information is, uh, is... making the world safe for democracy. Right. And that's during World War One. that's what people are talking about, is we are making the world safe for democracy. Now, if we are going to buy that private companies like DuPont and like J.P. Morgan Finance are what ultimately like push the U.S. into World War One, then what you have are you have these large sort of private entities and they are propagandizing people mm-hmm. to get them to do things, to get the public on their side so they make more money. But in both instances, it's really interesting how they're always appealing to democracy. Yes. Something, by the way, I don't think has gone away in the modern world. But it's very, very important that uh, the great irony of this period, much like Woodrow Wilson insisting that the executive becomes more powerful uh, so it can somehow be more democratic, yes. uh, is that you should join these causes so that you can be a better participant in democracy. And right. it's ultimately like the darkest thing going on with propaganda at this time. I think it's interesting, you know, we started out talking about Lippmann and talking about elites in a very general sense. And then we uh, moved to, to talking about the distinction between like a corporate and a political elite, you know, the, the corporate propaganda versus the state propaganda in World War One. And now what you're, you're saying basically blends them back together. Right, in the because the war profiteering can connects the commercial elites back to the political elites, and their their interests come into alignment, and it's pretty, and it you can see how those wouldn't be the interests of the the population at large, which I mean ties it back to the original critique. I mean, I think the best description of this is is the the good old propaganda model mm-hmm. through Noam yeah. Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky, uh, actually, yeah. Noam Chomsky takes the name of his book Manufacturing Consent from Lippmann. From Lippmann. And his propaganda model is that, you know, in your public view, that the news sells you truth, but it mm-hmm. just so turns out that the cost of running a multinational media empire could mm-hmm. never be supported by a subscription model of everyone paying a dollar for the New York Times. So they shore up that difference with yeah. advertisers. And everybody in this trifecta between, like, uh, beach, uh, between the media, politicians, and advertisers, is advertisers want money, the news wants views, and politicians want favorable coverage. Yeah. And they all have special relationships with each other. But you will notice nowhere in this model is the public finding out the what's actually yeah. going on. So the 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 you talked about Littman and, and his idea of setting the agenda, right? Yeah. And so Chomsky, uh, and it was a book by, uh, again, Manufacturing Consent by uh, Chomsky and David S. Herman is a book from, I believe, 1984? No, 1988. It's at the end of the 80s. Okay. Uh, That uh, is describing especially, basically the way in which corporate media produces propaganda, especially with regard to the the Vietnam War, and uh, then also with various interventions in Latin America and, and different political developments. They are basically arguing that that the corp- corporate media serves its own interests and the interests of the people who own it uh, and corporate interests generally uh, as a result of that uh, be- uh, because of the way that it presents news. So here you have an example of Lippmann's agenda setting, but the agenda setting is very explicitly pro-corporate. Right. right. The The agenda setting is very much in the interests of the corporations, though it's interesting to note whenever you're reading uh, 
the book that it does seem like the journalists and the, the corporations involved are also taking involved are also taking their cues from the government. So uh, you get a lot of alignment between uh, corporate and uh, governmental interests in that book as well. And it's difficult to read that book and uh, come away with the sense that uh, that the you know common good is being uh, pursued by these these corporate and governmental interests or that the general will is. Yeah, that Though, book is what made me raise my eyebrows at the term uh, public-private partnership, Yeah, which if you pay attention to like anything going on in the co- corporate world, you will often see the term public-private partnership used in a glowing fashion. And it's yeah. like, you know, like we facilitate public-private partnerships. And now whenever I see that phrase, I'm automatically suspicious. Yeah. I, I will say one thing, you know, my main critique of Chomsky is that Chomsky seems to take at face value the idea that all of the, the people that uh, the United States is fighting throughout all the conflicts that he describes are, uh, you know, loosely affiliated or unaffiliated third world liberationist movements when actually, you know, it's arguable that they were all part of basically global communism, right? So so when you're reading his book, well, you know, while I don't think that the agenda he's showing is really, you know, I don't think the Vietnam War was a good idea and uh, that the agenda that that he's showing the corporations and, and the government is promoting uh, through through these these, uh, you know, uh, media organs. Uh, well, I don't think that is identified with the or, or is is the same as the common good of, of the United States or the general will in the United States. I do think it's a lot closer to the interests of America than Chomsky uh, thinks it is for the simple fact that he and I have very different ideas of what the global left was like throughout that entire period. Yeah, Chomsky does this. It, the thing is, is uh, as we take a brief detour on Chomsky, I love Chomsky's analysis. I think if you look over at my bookshelf, you'll see like mm-hmm. a whole yeah. bunch of the books he wrote. And it's because, uh, like any good, uh, 24 year old dude who first started going to college, Chomsky made me feel like I was having a look behind the curtain. Cause you mm-hmm. sort of like grow up and you question the narratives politically that you're raised with. And then finally you have somebody like Chomsky who has this incredible, like factual recall. And he speaks very clearly. He speaks very co- confidently. I think even whenever he's wrong, but he's right about a lot of things and yeah. you really feel like you're getting the secret information. Uh, and then I got a bit older and I sort of realized like I, I find, uh, Chomsky's factual analysis to be on point. I find his moral analysis to be insane. And he is, his two assumptions that bother me the most is he talks about the American public as if they are all like far left anarcho-communist just waiting to happen. And the the government will not express, discover their true anarcho-communist morality. But also, like you said, he really romanticizes like, Mm -hmm. I think on this podcast, and anybody who knows me knows, uh, if you want to find somebody who's critical of American foreign policy, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm your man. Uh, but I really do think Chomsky tends to lionize uh, some of America's opponents. I, the most, the yeah. the lowest hanging fruit would be the uh, Khmer Rouge regime, but yeah. there are far more instances than just that. Uh, I I think that Chomsky. You know the the problem is is that Chomsky is criticizing the specific agenda of of these um, of of corporate media, right, and its collaboration with government. Uh, but he uh, and and is very good at describing the way in which the narrative that they promote uh, doesn't match 
the facts on the ground, but then, uh, which 100%. Yeah. I, and I agree with that. I agree with his assessment there, but, uh, then Chomsky, uh, also has his own narrative and his own idea of what the general will should be. Right. Or what the, the common good is, which he's an anarcho syndicalist, which right. he's very yeah. clear about. And, uh, and that doesn't match the facts on the ground either. It does. Right. And sorry, <laughs> no, it just makes me laugh just, every time when people ask him about like, uh, he's like, oh yeah, some Pew survey said that like 60% of Americans would be for socialized healthcare. And he's like, so, you know, obviously there's some sort of like, there's this underlying like communist characteristic that lies yeah. dormant within the American people. And, uh, whenever you have, whenever you hear him talk about his moral philosophy, mm-hmm. what he explicitly says is that, uh, as material conditions improve, we mm-hmm. are actually discovering our true morality as if all the morality that we had beforehand was somehow a, a, a false morality. Yeah. And that as material conditions improve, we're discovering a true morality, which is why we're, co- we're becoming more like loose and liberated and tolerant of like all these various like sexual movements. And I think, and that's very much a key part of his political philosophy. And mm-hmm. I think that's not true. I think that I think that uh, you know, I'm a I'm a moral realist, right? So I'm not one of these people who's just like a an extreme moral relativist. But it well, nor is like, Chomsky. He he bites on the relativists quite a bit. Yeah, which is one of the things I appreciate about him. But I think that I I wouldn't say that the morality of the present that he likes is a truer morality than the morality of you know, like morality under terrible conditions is not less morality than morality under good conditions. You just have more freedom under the good conditions to do what you prefer. Like, you know, if you're stuck, if you're stuck in a, a lifeboat and there are five people there and only four of them can survive, like figuring out who's going to die is a really hard moral, you know, moral decision. And then that's lifeboat ethics is a, is a, is a common like sort of uh, thought experiment and philosophy and way of looking at things. Um, but you know, that situation is not a situation where you're, you're, you're not acting according to your true morality. That's a situation where you just got to make some really hard decisions and you better make them according to true morality. Right. Right. Um, but, but anyway, so, so, you know, this, I, I guess bringing it back to Lippmann and, and to the, you know, the, the main thing here is that, is that, you know, that Chomsky and uh, and manufacturing consent uh, deal, you know, connect very organically to Lippmann in that they're both talking about, you know, a specific elite class who's who's setting the agenda and, and manufacturing this propaganda in a specific way. And I when I say propaganda, I'm really, you know, I'm I'm using it in a partially neutral fashion there right like i think there's selected information which signals a narrative yeah right you know there's a lot of reportage that that chomsky is criticizing that i'm not as as critical of right i'm i'm partial you know partially convinced and and partially unconvinced and um so i i'm not meaning to assert that everything that's put out by uh you know corporate media is is propaganda in the pejorative sense right um i I don't want to be misunderstood on that point because I'm, i'm very emphatically not making that point um, I think that both of those are very what I would call modernist narratives of the way that uh, corporate interest and uh, um, uh, government interest work because it, it moves specifically from like a, a technical way of approaching things to a uh, you know material gain uh, you know just making money through war profiteering or everything is interest, a cynical you know. economic arrangement yeah when when you know connecting this back to uh, the cultural evolutionary 
uh, analysis that, that you and I have been reading and that I've been talking about, I think takes it almost into a, a more postmodern realm, right? Because uh, I think that a lot of what happens, uh, you know, in the, the cultural realm is a, a you know, realm of uh, discourse and signs, right? More than, more than simple material interests. But one of the things that's talked about in, in cultural evolution is that humans have a natural tendency to, well, emulate each other, right? That's a huge part of it. And to, to take cultural practices that are transmitted from person to person, generation to generation. But one way that people decide what cultural practices to adopt is by looking at people who have high prestige, right? And in like a traditional society, say a hunter-gatherer society, like the, the men that have the highest prestige are going to be like the best hunters, right? And so it makes sense that humans would have evolved to look at the people who are the best hunters and, you know, basically they get a lot of praise and, you know, boys want to grow up to be like them. And if the boys do grow up to be like them, then the whole society has more meat, more food to eat. Right, that kind of thing, and so in that case, the the prestige is attached to a technical capability, right? And it's pro-social for people to look at the prestige that you know prestigious individuals, and uh, and and to emulate them. Now, in our society, which is a more postmodern society where we live with uh, you know great ease, uh, the uh, you know the the prestige that human tendency is a raw material for institutions that are attempting to create uh, meaning, right? It's a raw material for institutions that are trying to, you know, promote certain ideas or to propagandize or to set an agenda. I mean, that's, that's like what the adverti what advertising agencies do, right? The, the raw yes. material of human prestige, be like this guy. Yeah, be like this guy. Yeah, that's uh, what's the, the joking Rolling Stones lyric, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, right? That's it's from Satisfaction, right? I think that's one of the best lyrics penned in, in classic rock. Um, but but who, do, who do these corporations hire to be their spokespeople, right? People who have prestige, professional athletes who are held up as, as symbols of excellence. And, you know... Uh, famous actors because fame is a form of prestige, right? And it's something that's been commented on for, for centuries that there are all sorts of people who are famous or, you know, have high status, right? And are therefore prestigious even though they didn't do anything. Uh, even Adam Smith, you know, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, a famous economics text, but he wrote a book before that called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he has a, a, a chapter or uh, maybe even a couple discussing the way in which people look at the royalty and people who are uh, at the top and basically see them as uh, being, you know, virtuous and, and paragons and great people, even if uh, they're just, you know, expressing normal morality, right? Basically, you, you, the set's a very low bar. But anyway, the, the point being that all of these corporations are using or hiring these people because these people are prestigious and they're trying to tap into this evolved... Uh, you know, desire for prestige, right? Or this evolved desire to emulate prestigious individuals in order to get you to consume products. That, and that's the problem is that uh, anything that base, any large institution that bases mm -hmm. its selling point off prestige, i.e. using a celebrity to like pawn something, like, you know, you have The Rock posing on a billboard or something. Yeah. It Walter Lippmann's correct in the sense that this process cannot help 
but be it's obviously inaccurate it can't help but be mediated by stereotypes and signs mm-hmm. uh, as he points out at the beginning of the book right. no man is a hero to his valet right and that and that you portray these perfect people that do these perfect things what's a valet because some people won't know that that's something we don't have that much anymore that's a dude who, if you drive up to a fancy event, it's a dude in a suit who takes your car for you and goes and parks it. <laughs> well, in Littman's time, uh, the valet... Or who takes your suitcases. Yeah. Well, in, in Littman's time, it's actually a body servant. So it's somebody who's, like, uh, taking care of you all the time. Like in Jeeves and Worcester, if you've ever seen oh. that. Uh, so so he's saying that, that somebody who somebody who's who's been intimate with you and... And you know, basically, seen when seen you when you've been drunk, or taken care of you when you're sick, or or shined your shoes and washed your clothes, right? Has has seen seen what you are when you don't have all of the the, you know, uh, um, fixings of your your outward appearance. Even right? George Washington went to the toilet. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like you know, but no. So the point is, like, first of all, it can't but help but be inaccurate. And this speaks to Lippmann's point, because the interesting take that I want to get that ties together cultural evolution and Lippmann, mm-hmm. this thought I had that I feel uh, is a hot take. Perhaps mm-hmm. somebody has had this take before, but they haven't written about it and I haven't read it. So it's simply this. Uh, cultural evolution is really big on this idea that we are cultural beings. Mm-hmm. Our prime evolutionary trait is not like our individual i'll call it like platform intelligence right like it's the fact that we can learn from each other because like you know you put infants next to little gorillas and chimpanzees and the chimpanzees and gorillas beat us every time but if it's a task you have to learn in terms of yeah in terms of figuring things out on your own yeah yeah. but if you introduce a task where you get to learn from somebody another member of your species who's older we just beat the pants off the chimps and gorillas every single time. And that skill only grows as we get older. We generate our entire reality. Mm -hmm. uh, What Lippmann, you know, calls the pseudo environment out of like this series of learned things that we get from other beings. Yeah. Now, Walter Lippmann says regular people, uh, all people have an information problem. They're incapable of generating high resolution images of things going on at large scales. Now he concedes that they're capable of doing it, and they're actually really, really good at doing it on a local scale. The, the example he uses, a farmer in Pennsylvania who's lived in the same 15 square miles of Pennsylvania his entire life, yes. is really, really good at interrogating and navigating the goings-on of what's happening around, like, Titusville, Pennsylvania. And indeed, he says in the book that spontaneous democracy can only happen in this uh in this environment right you can only have spontaneous democracy and he means spontaneous as in not like ultimately externally controlled by some sort of information gateway elite spontaneous democracy can only happen within small communities and the example he gives is like jeffersonian democracy which is what he means when he says democracy happens within a circumscribed space you have a bunch of farmers that live off by themselves they're really good at generating democratic ways of dealing with things now I think this has directly to do with the fact, because I agree with him on both of these ideas. Yeah. And it has directly to do with the role that culture formation plays in being a human. Yes. We develop our entire worldview through culture and received information from other people. This happens on a, this happens literally on a physical contact scale. Mm -hmm. It is lashed to our biology. And until we reach the singularity and upload into mind cubes, Mm -hmm. our consciousness is hopelessly lashed to our body. And so what happens, we're really good at generating through culture, 
accurate images of the goings on around us whenever mm -hmm. we're receiving that information personally. What happens is as our society gets larger and we jump up levels of abstraction, right? Yes. Like I can see the rock on a billboard. I know what the rock is affiliated with. I can even smell what the rock is cooking, but I've never met the rock. Mm -hmm. I don't know him like his valet does. And the ideas that he's being used to push could or could not be correct for me. It's probably more likely that I'm being pushed to like smoke cigarettes or buy some product that's mm -hmm. not good for me. Yeah. But it's not happening on my scale. And that Walter Lippmann's solution is basically, okay, we have an information problem, so we need somebody at the... He presupposes that we live in this large, complex society mm -hmm. and that... We have to manage it. So if you're going to have, if you're going to have a managerial class, well, then have a managerial class and make sure that you know they're at least competent and good at what they do. Yes. I don't necessarily agree with that solution. You could say I'm a little bit more. I mean, fatuously so, anarchistic. Yeah. And I do sort. You know, uh, I believe in this Aristotelian idea that an essential element of politics is friendship. Mm -hmm. And this is what Aristotle was saying, right? Mm -hmm. Real politics, spontaneous democracy happens at the level where we can interact with other people in the polity face to face. When we jump beyond those abstractions, that's whenever it becomes vulnerable to propagandizing and external manipulation. Right. And so if we're going to come up with a political atom through mm -hmm. which to rule our affairs, it should probably have something to do with like a Dunbar number. I mean, right. that's, that's, that sounds like a really stupid solution but it's one i've come to believe is like yeah if you're going to come up with a voting political atom it should be a community it should be your city maybe even your state if you live in like rhode island or something right so anyways that's to me that's how cultural evolution and public opinion tied together is like okay we're lashed to our biology we mm -hmm. form pictures based on culture yes. which is done through face-to-face -face contact it seems obvious that the ultimate political act atom for engaging in any sort of meaningful democracy is going to be face-to-face. -face. Yeah. And so, that we rethink our mediation between groups. Yeah, so, you know, when you when you go up to these larger levels of organization, it's almost like you have to sub substitute propagandistic symbols as the type of cultural transmission for the, the, the you know, lateral or person. I mean, it becomes a simulacra. It, yeah. be it becomes a simulacra of culture. It's, and almost it, like... That's how it has to be managed. Yeah, parasocial relationships with these politicians, right? You see them on the screen, but you don't actually know them. And then, But then you're getting meaning from being participating in the political process with these people you've never met in the way that you would usually get meaning from your, like... Uh, interpersonal relationships, well, and, the, and right? it's playing itself out in the real on your community because communities right. get divided over allegiance to these these like second order yeah simulacra the the problem is is that when you're in a globalized society like that right uh then you need these political institutions in order to deal with like large corporations or other nations and stuff and so in the same way that we were talking about earlier how uh you know foreign policy reshapes democracy having to deal with those things reshapes your political institutions and and depersonalizes de, uh your your political cultural interactions and so that you end up having to to uh you know the things have to be coordinated by propaganda and symbols on the like a national or transnational level and that's right? well and that's Lippmann's point is that basically uh Everybody wants to play, but they don't want to lose. Mm -hmm. You want all the benefits uh, and the openness of a globalized 
world, mm-hmm. but you want the appearance and affectation of democracy. Yeah. And if you try to strive for both of those things, you're basically going to get like this twisted oligarchy mm-hmm. that insists that it is a democracy. Well, and democracy becomes a justific- justificatory ideology for uh, letting the state reshape you according to those propagandistic things because it's just bringing you in line with the general will, right? Yeah, it it becomes an we external and internal earlier. crusader. Yeah, yeah. The same thing we were talking about earlier with the, the you know, um, the, the general will or the idea of the common good and the fact that, that you can get interests counter-identified with it. And then once you have like sort of that symbolic, uh, you know, meme space that that's going on in, that that form of politics is going on in, right, uh, then that's subject to manipulation by, by uh, corporations as well, right? Like you see them use, that's a co- corporation, and they use the, the symbols from other areas to, to manipulate the populace. So you see, you see these... Things like patriotism that are necessary for coordinating the populace at the national level, right, being used by companies to sell products as well. You use, and things like the family that have symbolic value are used to sell products as well. I mean, that's the, that's the new warfare, ostensibly, is uh, the, the warfare within the meme space. Yeah. Which I know what you mean when you say that, but I can't yeah. help but like that, you know, like the, the, meme, the meme space. space. I'm thinking of like a like, little Pepe frog. Yeah, you, well, and, and it's, it's one of those things that you see in so many like uh, online things that it's just become cliche. And so every time you say it, you, you almost can't just but sit there and you're like, Muh. But like in, <laughs> all, in all seriousness, though, so it yeah. was like uh, during... Uh, uh, like 2015, 2016, we knew that in like in like Velas Macedonia, mm-hmm. uh, the Russian Federation was setting up these like little they they were these little like mobile trailers that just had they were server farms mm-hmm. that were filled with Russian university students who studied American culture, and like their whole job was to like sit there and to sort of like play around with ideas like what gets views, what doesn't mm-hmm. get views. Stuff like this was the basis uh, for, like, Russian disinformation about, like, the 2016 election. But there's all sorts of spaces all across uh, the last 15 years where, like, uh, meme propaganda has been used. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's been argued that that was used very effectively by the uh, uh, National Endowment for Democracy during Mm -hmm. the series of uprisings after 2012 called the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And indeed... There are several government think tanks that are concerned with virality and how to make things go viral, obviously for perpetuating uh, the interests of the American government. And mm-hmm. there are governments all over the West. Uh, um, the UK has a government branch called Nudge, which, mm-hmm. you know, this yeah. is in conspiracy. If you go look on their website, it says we we hire behavioral scientists to uh, to come up with ways to make the public comply with government mandates. Again, That's on the website. That's on the UK.gov website. That's not me being crazy. Yeah. And that's just, uh, it's it's taken off in a way, if you think about it, in the time Walter Lippmann was writing, because he dedicates quite a bit of his time to radio and newspaper, Mm -hmm. and it was already very, very obvious what was going on mm-hmm. with the public information problem, right? At the era of like in the era of radio and newspaper, you already have this information problem, right? Yeah. The problem with public perception isn't access to information. It's the ability to filter information because yeah. people are incapable of generating pictures. That has only impl- amplified by like 50 million yeah. since then. And and the thing I the point I want to make about these these higher level and more abstract concepts and things like that that then enter in is that 
you know, you, you talked about Aristotelian democracy being based on friendship and these close interpersonal relationships and, and how it kind of has to be local in some ways. Um, when you have to concern yourself with these national and international things and you have to concern yourself with the, you know, the, the things, these elite cultural products and things like that that are being put back into you as propaganda, what that does is it, is it, well, part of your attention and part of your life is now devoted to those things rather than those more personal relationships, right? And uh, so in that sense, it like directly uh, sort of colonizes the, the social space in which you live and the political space in which you live. And then it also indirectly does so because those things don't simply replace elements of, of you know, your, what, where your, your sort of self-conception and your community conception as they existed before it goes in and, and now those other things have to relate to that, so it changes those things as well. So it's, it's a, a massive alteration of uh, the way in which uh, your, your life functions. And so, you know, that, again, is the sort of thing that's, that's happening at the state interest and at state level and, and at the level of, of uh, you know, politics. I think that that's also happening at the corporate level uh, through the prestige mechanism that we were just talking about, because like you know when when corporations promote certain things as as prestigious or something uh, you know a product you should buy, they're literally manufacturing a form of elite culture, right? And that elite culture uh, goes in and uh, alters the way in which you comprehend and perceive reality. So like just to take an example, right? Uh, so Kanye West, right? <laughs> I was gonna think about ESGs, but we can talk about no, Kanye. no, no, no. Kanye, <laughs> Kanye, Kanye West. Well, because I, w- I want to talk about something very specific having to do with prestige, right? You listen, you listen to Kanye West because he's uh, he's you know a good artist and everything like that. But every minute that you're listening to Kanye West is uh, a minute you're not listening to say uh, hymns, right? And that reshapes the entire landscape of your life. And that sounds very ra- radical with me uh, saying that, uh, right? Because it's like, okay, well, what are you are you saying we need to go back to some sort of you know Bible thumping thing? And it's like, well, how many times have you loved the emperor today, brother? Yes, exactly. It's like, yeah, Warhammer 40k, uh, the the prayer pray, praying to the emperor and things like that. But the thing is, is that is that you know 200 years ago. Uh, before the advent of popular music, that that's the sort of thing that you would have been listening to, and now instead you're listening to Gold Digger on a day-to-day basis, which uh, you know Gold Digger is a fantastic song. I listen to it quite a bit, but it's really a, <laughs> but but it's but it's a, a, a it's a great song. It Sorry. is a great song, but it's also literally a ca- catalog of of just miserable social dysfunction. True. Right? Like think True. about it. Yeah. I mean, like she takes my money yes, when I'm in need. need. Yeah, well, or, you know, just, like, people leaving other people because they want money and things like that, and a escape of, of love and sexuality that's based entirely on materialism and pleasure. Like, I mean, it's... it's The song is, is about a landscape denuded of real meaning. Like, go listen to it. Tell yeah. me I'm wrong. Um, you know, and, and so there's this, this sense in which, uh, you know, and, and that's a form of commercial music. It exists... I'm not saying there's not artistry there, but it exists to make people money. Right, it becomes even more blatant when you look at something, you know, because Kanye West is an actual artist, right? Who with an actual personality. When you look at something like, say, BTS or K-pop, it becomes <laughs> even more um, 
even more uh, no it's like light. it's corporate higher realism like the the k-pop industry is monstrous in how it it produces yeah. oh, pop stars yeah and pe- people who are living simulacra of, yeah of what a human being should be like right like there's there they've almost been remade to look more like anime characters and that right? well and they control and, what relationships they're in they fabricate breakups for like dramatic news yeah coverage. it's it's like it's like wwe except nobody understands that it's all kayfabe right <laughs> Like, it's like real cave, like monstrous kayfabe. Yeah. Uh, monstrous kayfabe. That's a, that's a new term that's going to take the internet by storm and you heard it here. I first. hope so. I, so. Um, but, but my, my point is, is that like, um, you know, I talked earlier about, we, we talked earlier about corporations selling everybody cigarettes and it turns out that they give you cancer. And I said that, you know, you can see sometimes, you know, that corporate provision is being a benign process, but corporations will also, uh, you know, they'll do what's in their interests, whether it's in your interests or not. And, you know, one of the things that corporations are good at is, is making these people prestigious so that people want to be like them. Right. You know, that's so much of, of various forms of music. People want to, people wanted to be like the rat pack, you know, and now people want to be like uh, rappers, right. Living that, that luxurious lifestyle. And, and that's a prestige thing. And, and that's why a lot of those songs are, are very, you know, boastful and things like that is because they're building up their prestige and their, their credibility. But what happens when, you know, corporations have convinced everybody to, you know, replace adoration of the Madonna with listening to Madonna, right? You might say, well, Madonna's a symbol of women's liberation. And I'm like, yeah, but the Virgin Mary is a symbol of underlying meaning in a human world. Right. So I'm just thinking of that admin meme where he's like, we call it uh, women's empowerment and they'll dance for the cost of a cheeseburger. Right. Oh my God. What is that from? It's a meme I saw. It's that's, just... that's vicious. That's uh, amazing. But yeah, but the thing is, is that, is that they will sell you pleasure. And it, even if it destroys meaning, right. They'll, they'll sell you whatever will, uh, you know, make you happy in the moment, even if it ruins your life. And you've always got to be asking when you're consuming these corporate products and engaging with, with you know, corporate-created prestige and corporate-created uh, culture, which is something that's now manufactured, created on a mass scale, and replacing traditional cultures uh, here and throughout the rest of the world at an alarming rate. Well, you know, what, what sort of meaning space have you moved yourself into? What sort of, you know... Uh, uh, it, you know what sort of things are you abandoning in order to enjoy yourself and in, in order to enjoy this corporate product well think about it how much the corporate world not just the like i will say the large institutional world mm-hmm. of modernity has caused you has caused all of us to externalize very very simple parts of human life so it's like if you imagine a tribe of hunter gathers mm-hmm. uh, living a couple thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little boy's like, I want to be like somebody. Who are they like? They're yeah. like their dad. They're like the you know the baddest dude in the tribe or whatever, the best mm-hmm. hunter. Yeah. Then you get up to the Middle Ages. And who do you want to be like? I mean, you might say externally, I want to be more like Jesus, but you know, like the like Christ or the saints, like, really. But it's That's more like I, I want to be like. It's going to be a real person that you know, mm-hmm. and it is kind of a phenomenon of human societies only at large scale. Yeah. Where it's like I think. Like the last Gallup poll that went out among high schoolers was, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And like seventy percent of them said they wanted to be like influencers. Yeah, or YouTubers. You want to do, yeah. Like the the people who who are exercising the most prestige. Mm-hmm. Not only do they exist on like the second order up, where it's like you, there's no reason to believe you will ever mm-hmm. meet them. Yeah. But their entire job is to just be prestigious. Yes, exactly. 
like Paris Hilton, who said that that her she was famous for being famous and nothing else, right? And that was a watershed moment. Well, it, but it, I I want to make the point though, like you talk about, you know, getting your prestige or emulating somebody close to you, right? Um, and and I think that's true, but I also think that it's that the ideals that were held up by like religion, right, or like the saints. And you can, in like, for example, medieval Catholicism, you can have a, a relationship with this, this, with God or with Christ, in with in modern Christianity with God, with Christ, with the saints, right? And but you perceive those people as being real people who are present with you, not people who you have a parasocial relationship with far away. Now, my argument would Fair. be that, like, when it comes to God and Christ, especially since I'm a Protestant, you are actually having a relationship with that person that's extremely, pro, you know, proximate and and you know very much there but your sub but i think a lot of what happens in our modern culture is you substitute out parasocial relationships with you know people who i I believe i'm using that term correctly with people you don't know for real social relationships and i think that's a source of immense loneliness and alienation because i don't think that that can ever actually take the place and i do want to make a distinction there like for example there are you know people guys who are very good at muay thai or mma that that i really like and i'm you know very interested in them and follow what you know i'm i'm not following what they're eating and stuff like that except insofar as it might apply to like you know sports nutrition but in that case you're following somebody who's who's very prestigious or and following and examining what they're doing because you want to get better at that specific activity right, right? and that's very different from just like a generalized prestige that's actually the original prestige we were talking about right which is that that you want to get good at being a, a hunter so you look at the best hunter in your tribe. You see these people out here who are the most, who are the you know the best um, fighters. So you study what they're doing to be more like them, and and that's actually prestige working in a, a very functional way because it's moving you up a skill hierarchy and and improving you as a person. And I another point I'd like to make is in the same way that we were talking about you know these these symbols and everything, you know sort of colonizing your own social space uh, when you are looking at somebody who's famous for no reason or who has prestige, um, you know, because they're an entertainer, not because you're trying to get better at some skill, but just to be entertained, that is substituting for your following somebody because of their prestige, because you're trying to become better yourself. And so that also colonizes the space of your own self-development. And that's that sort of passive uh, acceptance of media and more passive following of, of people with prestige is uh, a fundamental feature of our modern commercial society. Well, I think one area that people don't apply this thinking to, which I, I know this might be pretty controversial, but one of the things that I notice happening like in modernity and like the professional space with people I know is I call it therapy culture, right? right? It's become much more acceptable within the past decade to be like, Oh, I see a therapist. Do you see a therapist? If you spend any amount of time on like Instagram or TikTok, I don't recommend that you do. Yeah. You're actually going to see quite a bit of talk about therapy, about going to therapists, uh, content from therapists who are talking about how wonderful and amazing it is and how they think everybody in society, like even if you don't feel like something's wrong with you, you should have a therapist. In the past couple of years, there's even been a, a almost a, like you've seen this meme, men will do such and such instead of going to therapy. Yeah. Right. And there's, which, which has come out. I I don't know if somebody said that unironically first, um, but it almost comes out of a space where uh, they're all, 
we're getting to the point where you're almost being shamed for not being in therapy. Well, and here's the thing. The way I look at it is this, because we've been talking about uh, uh, large abstract institutions causing people to externalize these otherwise very natural parts of human life, right? Like, mm-hmm. like prestige and matching and stuff like that. And all I think about whenever I think about therapy culture, and this isn't an indictment of therapy, an indictment of therapy yeah, itself. Some people really need therapy. Some people really need therapy. Most people I think probably don't. And I really do think the modern edifice of therapy, it feels a lot like the external like the professionalization and externalization of an ancient human tradition known as friends. Yeah. Because we, li- we, uh, <laughs> yeah. I really mean, like, we live in such an atomized society where we should have enough friends that we can really sit there and be like, "I'm screwed up. Talk to me about it. Understand me, and here's why." But I know people mm-hmm. who don't have that. They talk about how they don't have that and how their therapist fulfills this function. I'm like, a licensed paid professional yeah. fulfills for you the function that at any other time in human history would be at most a priest or something, but it's usually going to be a friend or a family member. Mm -hmm. But increasingly people become, uh, alienated from their families. They, because of their professional life, they're isolated from their friends. They're just absolutely atomized. And so of course you get the ascendancy of what is essentially professional licensed, licensed friends, Mm -hmm. which is like super, but that's super modernity. Well, and that's something that kind of like the parasocial relationships will kind of, uh, fix the problem, but you're always going to know that that thing, that friendship, that fundamental love, like, you know, in, in ancient Greeks and Rome, like, you know, Amikitia and Philia are different loves from Eros. Yeah. Right. And Amikitia is the, the Latin word for friendship and, and, uh, Philia is the, the Greek word, right. Fundamentally different from like the love of God or, or erotic love. And, and it is a, personal and spiritual poverty not to have that and if therapy is taking the place of that therapy will only be able to do that partially it it's it might ameliorate it a little bit but you're always going to know that 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 hole is there that where you should have friendship and this has been something that that has been discussed for a long time i think even c.s lewis talks about how there there's problems in his time of the death of friendship and I've seen people who've been to I the... I forgot about that, yeah. yeah. And I've seen people who, who have been to the third world and talked to people there, and people in the third world like even perceive that Westerners don't have friends the way that they do. And part of that is that in, in some of the people in, in the, the you know, developing world that I've, I've heard talk about that will say it's because like they don't have social safety nets, and so you really do, you know you can count I on I mean, a friend people. is more than just a friend in the sense we think of. A friend is a lifeline. Yeah. Yeah, and that, but and what that does is that creates a lot more. Uh, the the intimacy isn't optional; optional, it's necessary, right? And um, and so the material conditions there conduce to it. But the thing is, is that in a what what then happens is that in a situation that we find ourselves in, uh, you know, where there's a social safety net and there's much more abundance, and we don't have to depend on people, is that then those those relationships won't happen organically and they therefore have to be cultivated and other things like you know again i don't want there are lots of people who need therapy i don't want to tell people not to go to therapy but like therapy or these parasocial relationships or these relationships to you know uh corporate franchises 
or uh, you know prestigious singers and different things like that take substitute for those things, but they can't fully substitute for them. And so you have to like consciously reject those things in favor of figuring out how to cultivate those those relationships of friendship. I do think that that is my ultimate fear for modernity whenever we're talking about Lippmann or mm-hmm. Bernays or Secret of Our Success, which is the book by Joseph Henrik, is that in the end, no matter how well the, we describe it, we will be as humanity a little bit like, well, to put it in the words of uh, Bilbo Baggins, butter scraped over too much bread. Yeah. We're, we're going to be externalizing too many of the most essential parts of human life Mm-hmm. in order to mold ourselves to the society that insi- that insists that we must reject local narcissism. That's the Pope words, not my, uh, not mine. We must reject local narcissism and embrace uh, the global society that makes ever-increasing demands upon our person. Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at culturecampcast and now on minds.com at culturecamp. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on Spotify and share this episode on social media. Thanks for listening.